tuned in to this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So this clip comes from episode number 355 with Lee Egger, who is head of performance at Feyenoord. So in this clip, we discuss Franz Bosch and his methods and how they have influenced Lee's practice. We also discuss the importance of hip lock and technical errors, which some of Franz's methods can hopefully help with when it comes to sprint technique. Just before we do get into this chat, I want to say a big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today. So if you're looking for a free solution to be able to collect, analyze, visualize, and present data to coaches, check out AMS Lite from Rock Daisy at rockdaisy.com. So we're going to have a little chat around Franz and how you've interpreted some of his methods and integrated it into the work at Feyenoord and potentially your own thoughts around it. When did you first get introduced to Franz and, and JP and and the rest of the guys that kind of come with Franz and his methods. Yeah, yeah I, like I said, I met JP when I was like 11, 12 years old and I trained with him as a, as a junior, right. like um, for my own personal development. Yeah, all the way up until when I left to come here, basically. Um, and through JP, I got to meet Franz when I was at university, actually. So it was quite early on in my tertiary education in Australia. Um, Franz came out for some courses in Sydney and, um, yeah, we, we, we met and we did some work together, did some training sessions. And, um, so I was exposed to JP is his, his own type of operator. And obviously Franz, people know his work reasonably well. Um, but I was exposed to those two things like quite early on in the piece while I also got my education in, um, sports science and then physiotherapy in my two degrees at uni. Um, so I was always a little bit um, skeptical about things that you get taught at university and whatnot. Um, and then I was applying those methods to myself basically for a number of years in my um, would-be budding football career. And then also I started to work with JP a lot more in rugby, um, individual consults, a little bit of traveling and stuff like this. Um, and so a, a mix of those two guys, like, yeah, uh, I'm – pretty blessed to have um two mentors like that because yeah not many people are lucky enough to have one of them but i've, I've had two um fantastic guys who've yeah tutored me and and got me to a to i i hope a, a skill set level that um is is pretty um pretty solid you said there and i picked up on that that people know franz's methods reasonably well as in they know of his method, methods well, but um, yeah, actually implementing them is a whole different um, ball game. Um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that many people, to be honest with you, who are taking the stuff on board and applying it really well. Uh, obviously, when f people ask like Franz or myself or Toon Thomason, for example, um, who, who applies them really well, like JP is one of the first people that come to mind. And there is people in little pockets in different sports around the world and stuff. Um, who are quite clever in implementing those things, but if you're working in a in a professional organization, you also know that like there is so many moving parts to what you do with players and how you construct your working your training week and games and and stuff like that as well. So um, it was nice to to work in a in a little niche area, like I said, like rehab, where you can apply these things with sort of a handful of other individuals but also not be limited by them um, because if you go into a big organization and you want to implement something like Franz's work which is inherently complex um, you're going to obviously butt into people with other ideologies who may completely disagree may not understand may not want to understand um, and then if you're trying to 
argue with someone or you're trying to make it too complicated or too complex, um, it's just going to fall flat on its face, I think. So um, with the help of Stein uh, at Feyenoord, I think in terms of introducing that sort of uh, framework and that, that style of, um, of training and, and um, philosophy, we, we started to ease our way into it with the playing group, get their buy-in first because that's obviously massive. Um, and then start to branch out from there, really. So it was complete coincidence, but um, I feel like it's been a, it's still a work in progress, but I feel like it's been um, pretty successful to date. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what that framework actually is? And I'm sure that there's, I'm, I've got loads of questions for you based on some of the readings that I've done around <clears throat> and listening to you on, on uh, other podcasts as well. But it'd be nice for people just to get a, a bit of an understanding of that framework as a whole or as a, as a summary. And then we can use that as a bit of a jumping off point to uh, dive a little bit deeper. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose I say framework because it's more like you have Franz's body of work there um, that you borrow bits and pieces of at certain times. And I, I think myself also, I'd like to borrow from uh, a bunch of different people's ideas and what I think is valuable, what I've used myself and what I think is research-based um, or evidence-based, let's say. Um, but yeah, like a, a good, I suppose giving you a, an example is probably the easiest way, but, um, like in a nutshell, if we have, um, like a playing group that we have, uh, at the moment and we're looking at, um, how they move and their, their, what's important to them and what's important as footballers and for our, for our head coach, um, a lot of stuff of this, by the way, is, is basically stolen or adapted from work that I've done or been a part of with JP before as well, but it applies to football really well, is um, robustness and efficiency. So like robust, are they adaptable? Are they resilient? Can they be well protected from injury? A lot of Franz's work is, is about um, um, not perfection, but stability being what the body is interested in um, and looking at like um, from uh, concepts like dynamic systems theory, motor learning, stuff like this. Um, pieces of that, like attractors and fluctuators, where attractors are real stable, economical components of movement that you want to encourage. And where, when you can have passive attractors, which is uh, something that's a little bit more dangerous for the body, but easy to fall into versus active attractors. So for example, like when you're running at speed, a passive attractor would be that you, you fall into deep dorsiflexion in it with your heel on the ground you get obviously like that's easy to fall into because of the, the ankle joint itself, but it's not performance enhancing. It can be risky for injuries. Um, whereas an active one is that as soon as you hit the ground, your heel pops up very suddenly. And then you can have like your, your tissues, like your gastrox, your, your quads and stuff like this, transporting energy and um, using elasticity a lot better. If you ask me like a broad question, like what you said there, you see how quickly it can go down like seven different mm -hmm. rabbit holes sorts of things. But it's all getting, good though. Getting, it's good. Yeah, it's good. Getting back to um, what I said about robustness and efficiency, like if I look at that in one specific area of our guys this year, we'll, for example, look at them running, like the, the running motion. What is important there? What are the key attractors that we need in the running cycle for football? Um, can we identify them? Um, can we test them? And can we train to then improve them? Um, and basically, if, if I break it down to something really simplistic and ignore the attractor, um, based sort of training and talk and stuff like that. If we look at our guys run, we get like obviously our objective measures and stuff, which are quite traditional in, in S and C and in performance. But then we look at them, do movement analysis of them. Okay. Do they have um, energy production or force production deficits or issues? 
Do they have um, more opportunities to store elastic energy and use their elasticity? Or do or can we uh, make differences with error corrections or technical errors like in the running? So obviously you have, you have like technical errors in the running and you have running style. Those things are two slightly different style. You don't need to modify so much. Technical errors can be injury risks, blah, 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 blah. And then we look at those, those three things. Um, look at what the limiting factors are for them. More often than not in football, it's the technical errors and the, the error corrections in the running. So that's like your coordination and, and the stuff where Franz's methods come in um, really useful. Um, and then we can allocate training resources to these guys to help improve their running efficiency, to help make them more robust, um, to get them faster, obviously, faster, more agile, etc., um, and to prevent them from getting injury. So we ideally, we have that performance improvement and injury prevention reduction like married together um, completely. And that's the biggest takeaway um, I can see from using Franz's work is he is one of the first or one of definitely one of the earliest people um, preaching that those two things need to be together. You know, injury production, injury prevention um, and performance. They need to, the training for them needs to be cut from the same cloth. Um, so yeah, just just uh, direct me in, in any direction because I tend to ramble on a little bit, but. No, that's good. That That's great. So technical errors in football, from what you've seen, what are the biggest technical errors that you've come across that you could almost group quite a few people together in that in that bucket yeah well i'll start by saying that with football you have um, ball control and then you have body control and because you have ball control which is quite complex uh the body control is very often poor and uh that's that's uh stolen directly from friends as well and he uses uh slightly more harsh words let's say for for the way that footballers move <laughs> in general but i completely agree with him like um footballers on the whole are really really poor movers um i give you an example uh, like for our guys, for example, um, it was the same when working in rugby with JP with a lot of the different teams, um, like pelvic control in three planes of motion. So that's like in inclusive, but not limited to like your hip lock in particular, linking that pelvic control with your ankles. So the hips and the ankles linking them together. Um, cause if you know little bits and pieces of the hip locks, you know, most people know like snatches or wall slides or whatever else, if you're training those things, um, over and over and over again, but there's no impacts or there's no linking with the hip, then in my opinion, it's a bit of a waste of time. Um, that can be a massive boost to your running both in acceleration and top speed. Um, then talking about like agility and change of direction and stuff like that, you have um, more abstract sort of principles like uh, joint coupling and hip hinge, which is joint coupling. So for deceleration, and again, in football, like it's, it's just, if you were to watch even incredibly high level games like at European championships at the moment, you quite often, yeah, if I sit with friends and I watch a football game, he's, you know, stares at the TV screen and he's like, look at these, these jokes, you know, they, they've got terrible trunk control. The pelvis is all over the shop. They can't hinge and, and slow down properly. Um, and yeah, if you can't hit the brakes properly, then you, you're probably going to be limited in your, in your max speed as well. Or yeah, your, your speed that you can, you can hit before you slow down. So I'm, I'm, just jumping off everything you're saying because there's, there's loads of things that avenues that yeah. could go down. So hip lock, that's something that you're seeing all the time. Give us the give us the overall benefits of doing that really well, and why people would do it. And more, but interestingly for me, what are common errors that you see when people are trying to implement that? 
Yeah, I would say Hiplock kind of like um, almost got blown out of proportion because it, it kind of got like JP took it, used it really well with Japan rugby. It kind of blew out of proportion like what actually it is and like how much value you can get out of it. But like I, like I said, I would think of it more in terms of like pelvic control in three planes of motion. So you have like your, your forward and backwards tilt, you have your upwards and downwards tilt, and you have your forwards and backwards rotation. And when, for example, you're, I'm sure friends, there's plenty of videos of him lecturing with this like all over the, the internet at the moment, especially during COVID lockdowns and stuff. But when you're moving at speed like that, you, you want an optimum combination of those three movements. For example, when you're striding or when you hit the ground and you it, your, your hip recoils back up. And if any one of those movements like collapses too far, for example, too much forward collapse in the pelvis, then all the other three are compromised as well. Um, and it's a little bit the same, like the linking of that pelvis or linking of the pelvis with, with the ankle, like what I spoke about before with collapsing into your, into your heel, into deep dorsiflexion in, in, in running at speed. If you're training those hip locks and, and whatever else, and there is no linking of that with what's happening at the ankle, um, your transfer to, to actually your running is probably going to be, um, a little bit, a little bit limited. Um, so, so sorry, Lee, how can people do that? How can people make that ensure that link is, is happening? Yeah, I, th I think um, you probably need to have like a, a what, we, what we do sometimes when, we, when Franz teaches on courses is he has these great lecture slides on like the filter of, of specificity. I would direct people probably to he's, he's, he's actually running more online courses and stuff now for like the details of that. But if you look at like um, the some of the key elements of, of that specificity is, is like the, the motion of the limbs, obviously like how it looks, but what's happening a little bit deeper in terms of like intermuscular coordination, what's happening in individual muscles, which energy system is being used, um, the level of control of movement in the organism and stuff like this. So I would, I would suggest, you know, if, yeah, we're talking about something that could have so many different, um, approaches obviously but if you're looking at improving someone's top speed and for example they're like hitting the ground and the free side of their pelvis is dropping quite a lot say for example on a on a on a forward hop test or a, or a, a single leg uh, counter movement jump you see that and you see when they land you see this aggressive like dip of the free side of the pelvis then you might infer with or you know without uh degrees of certainty that then this hip lock can be useful because then you want them to then land and not have this collapse on the free side of the pelvis, but recoil back up, for example, when they're running. And then sort of uh, building your own exercises based off that, where you have the impact on the ground, but also that that free side of the pelvis can't collapse. So it's probably worthwhile like pasting a couple of videos or something into this, into this um, <laughs> podcast. But you see like, for example, you hop off from a box, from so I'm standing on a box here, you hop off from a box onto the other leg and then you need to bring your leg up onto a higher box with the free leg. So left leg hits the ground, this right leg is free and in the air and I need to touch my toe onto a box. Then that way, if I can organize my body to finish at that end point up on the box, if the box is high enough, my um, I'll be up on my toe, on my standing leg, so I won't have stayed collapsed on my heel. And if I need to get my foot up onto this box, my free side of my pelvis wouldn't be collapsed down. It needs to raise up pretty quickly. And then you can add more and more pressure to that by yeah, time pressure, like force pressure. You start adding um, things like punches over your head with weights or aqua bags, stuff like this, perturbations to then try to challenge the, the stability of that, that movement pattern more and more. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's a bit difficult without visuals and, and talking, yeah. talking at it. Yeah. Talking about it over a podcast, obviously, but, um, I would say a step back from that is like whatever sport people are working in, like, what is the, what are the limiting factors of, of these, um, of these athletes movements, you know? Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. This episode can be found on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And it's episode number 355 with Lee Egger. So big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today. And I will chat to you next time.